Through innovation, academic excellence, and family-centered clinical care, Children's Mercy Kansas City is transforming outcomes for children around the world. Welcome to the audio interview series, Transformational Pediatrics, with host, Dr. Michael Smith. Our topic today is mitigating hyperfiltration-mediated kidney injury. My guest is Dr. Tarek Srivastava. Dr. Srivastava is the director of the Nephrology Research Laboratory at Children's Mercy and associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Medicine. Dr. Srivastava, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for the invitation. So on, on this show, we have um, talked about the chronic kidney disease in children study. And I think let's start there because we've learned a lot from that study about how and why kids progress to eventually needing dialysis and transplantation. Tell us a little bit about how you were able to use some of the results from the C-Kids study and how that impacted your research. So from your, you know, we do know that children with chronic kidney disease, they will progress over time and eventually end up with being on dialysis and requiring a kidney transplantation. So over the last, you know, two decades, we have made a lot of progress on care of children on dialysis and transplantation. But the fundamental question is, how can we delay this progression of chronic kidney disease so children can go through their childhood without requiring dialysis and transplantation? Because you realize that most of the growth and the social development is going to take place during their childhood. And if we can delay or prevent development of dialysis, need for dialysis in childhood, that would be really great. So the, so the work which we have been doing is we have been trying to figure out how we can delay the progression of chronic kidney disease. So from the CKID study, we have learned that the most common reason for children being, you know, having chronic kidney disease and progressing into dialysis and transplantation is from the developmental defect. They're just born with a abnormality. So we call this as CACUT, which stands for congenital anomalies of the kidney and urinary tract. And this is the most common reason for children requiring dialysis and transplantation. And in contrast to what we see in the adults, where the most common reason for adults requiring dialysis and transplantation is from diabetes and hypertension. So when you really go back and rethink about children, we know they don't have hypertension and diabetes, but they are still progressing towards dialysis, and they do it at uh, different rates. So our whole project was trying to understand why they develop it and how can we mitigate this injury so they don't progress Mm -hmm. as rapidly or if we delay it. So that's what we have been working on. And specifically, you were uh, recently published in the American Journal of Physiology, and I'd like for you to review for us what the relationship then is between hyperfiltration or fluid flow shear stress and the prostaglandins. What have you found, um, or what have you what have you discovered about the role of prostaglandins in this situation? So, to put it in a nutshell, like we all remember from our high school days, you know, when we read biology, that the kidneys filter the blood and make the urine. So if you really think about it, the kidneys have these special filtering units which filter the blood and make the filtrate, which becomes processed into the urine. So if you really think about it, an average adult is making about 180 liters of this filtrate. 
and only then it gets processed to make one to two liters of urine. So if you really think about it, the filtering that is taking place in both the kidneys are being, you know, done by these filtering units because there are about a million of each in each kidney. So the whole idea is that if you start losing these filtering units over time from any chronic kidney disease, then the remaining kid, the remaining filtering units have to work harder and harder. So it's almost analogous to, you know, you know, if you have, you know, overtime or increased workload. So like if you had a division where you had 20 people and 10 people left, the remaining 10 people still have to do all the work. The work still needs to get done. So same way as the kidney starts to fail in chronic kidney disease, the remaining kidney, which is still working, has to work harder and over time. And what happens is over time, this gets injured. So the fundamental question which we were asking was, is how does these cells, which are in the filtering units, getting affected by this injury process? So people have worked in the past that as these filtering units are filtering more and more, we call this as hypofiltration. So the question we were trying to figure out is how are these cells responding to this phenomena and how are they responding to this injury stimuli of increased uh, you know, filtration. So we have known for a long time, but we have always talked about this biological phenomena of filtration in the form of, you know, glomerular capillary pressure and ultrafiltrate flow rate. So, but what I did was about a decade ago, we started rethinking of it from an engineering perspective. So if you were an engineer and you were trying to understand the filtration, we started kind of rethinking this in the form of biomechanical forces. So what happens is as you have the ultrafiltrate flow of these cells, it's going to cause a shear stress. It's almost what you see is, you know, if you have a river flowing, how the stones under the river, they are getting the shear forces of the river flowing over it and they become smooth from all the erosion over time. So similarly, these cells which are exposed to these high flow rates are getting exposed to increased shear spread. So the next question we were trying to figure out is how do these cells respond to these increased forces? And then we developed an in vitro model to study the effect of different magnitudes of shear stress on these cells and in the animal models. And that's what led us to identify that when the cells have this increased shear stress, they start making a lot of prostaglandin E2. And in addition, the prostaglandin E2 works through one of its four receptors, which are called as EP1 to EP4. And what we really found was these cells, which normally do not express the EP2 receptor, under this increased fluid flow shear stress, they start expressing this receptor called EP2. And we found that in our cell model system and in our animal model system for increased flow. So that's how we landed up identifying prostaglandin E2 and the EP2 receptor in these situations of hyperfiltration. So our next work, which we're trying to work on, is if we can block the effect of EP2 receptor, then hopefully we'll be able to mitigate the injury. So that's where our current work is. And that in in your um, in your paper that was published, you mentioned that the the PGE2 and the EP P2 receptor are potential targets, but you also mentioned that there was a an upregulation or an increase in the expression of some of the inflammatory enzymes like the COX system. Can you tell us a little bit about the connection there? Yes. Yeah. So 
So basically, the prostaglandin E2 is produced by the Cox enzyme. So what we found that under the increased injury, it basically increases the cyclooxygenase 2 enzyme or the Cox2. So basically what we have identified, it is like a pathway of increased Cox2, which makes increased prostaglandin E2, which then works through its EP2 receptor. And this is kind of an axis. And our next paper, which we published, is we are actually looking at what are the signaling pathways after the EP2 receptor gets activated. And we are finding that it is working through what we call as the AKT, GSK3 beta, beta catenin pathway. So we're kind of deciphering from the point of the stimulus to how the cell is responding to the stimulus, how it is responding to it, and what are the signaling mechanism it is using to bring about the changes. So in the last paper, I think what we were talking about the next level of what we call as mechanotransduction, that is how the signal is being transduced inside the cell. And that's where we are finding the phospho-AKT, the phospho-GSK3-beta, and the beta-catenin upregulation. So right now we are targeting the receptor EP2 because it's in, it's the, that's the one which gets expressed, and we know the signaling is happening through that receptor. So what we are really doing right now is we are actually having animals being exposed to both an EP2 agonist, which will stimulate the EP2 receptor, and an EP2 antagonist, which will block the receptor. And we're trying to see whether we can worsen the injury with the agonist and improve and mitigate the injury right. with the antagonist. So, right. that, And what else we are doing is, because the C-Kid has a lot of these urine samples from these children with chronic kidney disease, we are actually using those samples to look at all the markers of prostaglandin E2 metabolites. So we can actually, I, you know, we will be able to kind of identify children who will benefit the most from this EP2 receptor blockade. Mm-hmm. So th- that's what we're using the CKID data from. Yeah, and so just to kind of summarize all this, what, what your work has identified is a, a COX-2, PGE-2, EP2 receptor axis that can now be a potential target to slow down that injury, slow down that progression to dialysis and transplantation. Um, where I, I, there's a lot of work still to be done in all this, obviously. Um, what is your hope for getting this kind of uh, research into the clinical setting, and how how much time are we talking about? Uh, yeah, I think uh, bringing the drug from the bench to bedside takes a good five to ten years. But the good thing is about the EP2 receptor agonist and antagonist have been developed by the pharmaceutical companies. The EP2 receptor blocker has already gone through phase one clinical trial for another reason. So at least we already know that it is can be used in humans. So I think what we really need to, you know, confirm that the EP2 blocker will be really beneficial in the animal models. And hopefully in the next two or three years we'll also be having from the seed kid urine data exactly which would be the kids who will benefit the most. Yeah. And that probably we should be able to target this in the, hopefully in the next five to seven years, if everything goes as per the plan. Dr. Srivastava, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing at Children's Mercy, and thank you for coming on the show today. You're listening to Transformational Pediatrics with Children's Mercy Kansas City. For more information, you can go to childrensmercy.org. That's childrensmercy.org. I'm Dr. Mike Smith. Thanks for listening.